Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Huscher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, December 15th through Sunday, the 18th, feature guest conductor Nikolai Zepneider and organist Cameron Carpenter. The program includes The Sorcerer's Apprentice by Paul Duca, with Carpenter, Poulenc's Organ Concerto, the Concerto for Organ, Strings, and Timpani, and Saint-Saëns Symphony No. 3, the Organ Symphony. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Poulenc Concerto in G minor for organ, strings, and timpani, the performance time around 22 minutes. Armed with money from her father's sewing machine fortune, Winaretta Singer commissioned Francis Poulenc to write this concerto. Better known by her fancy married name, Princess Edmond de Polignac, she hosted one of Paris's most celebrated salons where many of the early 20th century artistic giants regularly gathered. In time, she commissioned works from Stravinsky, Faure, Ravel, Manuel de Falla, Debussy, he called her Madame Machine à Coudre, Madame Sewing Machine, and two concertos from Poulenc. Poulenc was no stranger to Parisian high society. He was born into a wealthy family and grew up in the city center near the Élysée Palace. His father ran the huge Ron Poulenc pharmaceutical firm. His family name was as well known as Winneretta Singers in business circles, and his mother came from a long line of native Parisians. Poulenc started studying the piano with his mother at the age of five and later took lessons from Ricardo Vignes, the great pianist and friend of Debussy and Ravel. He soon met with artistic celebrities of the day, including Satie, Cocteau, and Stravinsky. He missed the scandalous premiere of The Rite of Spring in 1913. He was just 14 at the time, but he caught up with it the following year and was intoxicated by Stravinsky's music. In 1917, he attended the historic opening of Satie's Parade with sets and costumes by Picasso. It was at the premiere of Manuel de Falla's Master Peter's Puppet Show in the Princess de Polignac's home that Poulenc met the pioneering harpsichordist Wanda Landowska in 1923. The dazzling Concert Champêtre he wrote for her four years later may have convinced the princess to commission Poulenc to write another concerto. And the success of that work, the Concerto for Two Pianos, in 1932, probably emboldened Poulenc to ask the princess for another commission. She agreed, but warned Poulenc that she could only pay him half as much this time because, quote, thanks to Mr. Roosevelt, my musical budget is considerably reduced, unquote. It was the princess who suggested, or perhaps dictated, the idea of a concerto for organ. To prepare, Poulenc attended organ recitals by Marcel Dupré, who recently had accepted the prestigious post of organist at Saint-Sulpice. He also sought advice from Nadia Boulanger, the famous composition teacher who had studied organ with Albert Schweitzer, and from Maurice Touroflet, a young virtuoso organist who was to give the premiere of the new concerto. Among his many questions, Poulenc wanted to know how to achieve that sort of tedious drone of many church organs. The concerto Poulenc ultimately wrote is a provocative yet thoroughly characteristic mixture of light and somber music. In a memorial tribute, Ned Roram called Poulenc a whole man always interlocking soul and flesh, sacred and profane. 
It's darker than most of Poulenc's earlier works, one of the first indications of a new seriousness and depth of expression that crept into Poulenc's music after the death of a good friend in an automobile accident in 1935. Poulenc returned to the Catholic faith around the same time. But this somber tone is still balanced rather than contradicted by the wit and style of Parisian café society. Poulenc's music becomes truly powerful, not just merely delectable, when it encompasses both majesty and insouciance, gravity and charm, sobriety, high spirits. The concerto runs the gamut, and the virtuoso organ solo seems to come from the cathedral one moment and the street fair carousel the next. After consultation with Durofle, Poulenc carefully dictated the organ registration, the selection of stops that changed the instrument's color. He keeps the organ in the spotlight throughout and calls attention to its broad spectrum of sounds and chameleon-like ability by accompanying it with strings punctuated judiciously by the timpani, a star appearance in a supporting role. The concerto is a large single movement with interlocking contrasting sections that flow gracefully from one to another, often despite their seemingly unrelated character. Soon after Poulenc finished the concerto, Winneretta Singer left France for England, where she felt that she would be in less danger as an American. She died there in exile in 1943. Notes by Philip Huscher on the Poulenc Concerto for Organ, Strings, and Timpani. And now, on to the Saint-Saëns Symphony No. 3, the Organ Symphony, the performance time around 34 minutes. Franz Liszt never heard this piece. It was premiered in London two months before his death, but he had admired the score during his last visit to Paris while Sassons was still working on it. In July 1886, when Sassons learned that Liszt had died in Bayreuth, where he had gone to visit his daughter, Cosima Wagner, and to attend Tristan and Isolde and Parsifal, he decided to publish this new symphony with a dedication to the older composer's memory. Liszt's music served as a model to Saint-Saëns throughout his career. The unconventional form of this C minor symphony with two movements folded into each of its two main sections and its use of a signature theme that is transformed as the work proceeds are clearly indebted to the innovations of Liszt's own scores. Saint-Saëns may even have taken the idea of including the organ in a piece of symphonic music from one of Liszt's tone poems, Battle of the Huns. Saint-Saëns never misunderstood Liszt's true importance to the history of music. Quote, the world persisted to the end, he wrote, in calling him the greatest pianist to avoid the trouble of considering his claims as one of the most remarkable of composers. Saint-Saëns' own musical life had a Mozartean beginning. At the age of two, as he later recalled, he observed the symphony of the kettle with its slow crescendo so full of surprises and the appearance of a microscopic oboe whose sound rose little by little until the water had reached a boiling point. At four, he performed part of one of Beethoven's violin sonatas in a Paris salon and he began to compose at six. He made his public debut at the Saint Pleal in Paris at 10, playing a concerto by Mozart and a movement from Beethoven's C minor piano concerto and offering as an encore to perform from memory any one of the 32 Beethoven sonatas the audience requested. 
Berlioz wrote, This young man knows everything, but he lacks inexperience. Saint-Saëns quickly grew into an artist of maturity and taste, both as a performer and as a composer. Berlioz called him an absolutely shattering master pianist, and Proust wrote that his playing was free of the writhings, shakings of the head, and tossing of hair that adulterate the purity of music with the sensuality of dance. Saint-Saëns played his second piano concerto with the Chicago Symphony, by the way, in November 1906. Saint-Saëns lived a full half-century longer than Mozart, however, and he kept composing and performing up to the very end. He played in public for the last time just four months before his death. His career is one of music's longest and most productive. During his lifetime, composers as diverse as Mahler, Tchaikovsky, and Debussy were born and died. When Saint-Saëns himself died at 86, he had made his mark as a writer of operas, symphonies, concertos, and a treasure trove of smaller miscellaneous pieces. Today, the public knows but a mere sliver of this vast output, particularly the carnival of the animals he never took seriously and refused to publish, two or three of his concertos, Samson and Delilah, alone of his dozen operas, and this, the so-called organ symphony. This symphony was popular from the start. After Saint-Saëns conducted the Paris premiere, Charles Gounod remarked, There goes the French Beethoven, an indication more of Saint-Saëns' status at the time rather than a true barometer of his musical vision or depth. Saint-Saëns himself recognized that his considerable gifts, including a genuine flair for sumptuous orchestral color, suave and unforgettable melody, and brilliant craftsmanship, while untouched by most of his contemporaries, were not those of a pioneer. First among composers of the second rank was reportedly his own surprisingly honest and self-effacing, if offhand, evaluation. Neither a conventional symphony nor a true tone poem, the organ symphony borrows elements from both traditions. The form itself is unusual. This symphony is divided into two parts, Saint-Saëns wrote at the time of the premiere. Nevertheless, it embraces in principle the four traditional movements. But the first is altered in its development to serve as the introduction to the poco adagio, and the scherzo is connected by the same process to the finale. In other words, more experimentation with the standard chapters of symphony and sonata with the fusing of movements and the blurring of dividing lines of the sort begun earlier in the 19th century and vigorously pursued by Liszt in particular. The score opens with a brief, slow introduction, just long enough to announce a rising four-note motif that is Saint-Saëns' main musical material. This theme is already changed in character, if not in content, by the first agitated measures of the main allegro section that follows. A second, more lyrical melody eventually is combined with the main motif before the music loses momentum as it prepares the way for the poco adagio, reached without pause. Here, an extremely peaceful contemplative theme, as the composer described it, is presented low in the strings over soft organ chords. The calm and beauty are eventually disturbed, though not shattered, by the turbulence of the allegro. The two dissimilar musical worlds 
coexist happily by the end of the movement when nervous pizzicato triplets from the Allegro accompany the Poco Adagio's serene and untroubled melody. The second movement begins with a scherzo-like tempestuous transformation of the symphony's main material, dispelled briefly by arpeggios and scales swift as lightning on the piano. Saint-Saëns himself was a highly accomplished performer on the piano and organ, and the symphony includes substantial and prominent roles for both instruments. This peculiar combination of fury and tricky gaiety is later undercut by a powerful, grave, austere theme in the trombones, tuba, and basses. There is a struggle for mastery, Sansons writes, which ends in the defeat of the restless, diabolical element. This solemn theme rises and rests there as in the blue of a clear sky, signaling a significant change in the symphony's direction. A mighty chord from the full organ announces the approaching triumph of calm and lofty thought. The initial theme, now entirely transformed by the strings and shimmering piano chords, leads into a development of majesty, energy, and lyricism. There are several detours, including an unexpected pastoral episode for oboe, flute, English horn, and clarinet, and further transformations, but Saint-Saëns' triumphant, heaven-storming destination is now in sight. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Camille Saint-Saëns' Symphony No. 3, the so-called Organ Symphony. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.